following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. When I visited Israel recently, one of the first places that I was excited to see was a place called the Sea of Galilee. And part of the joy on this trip to Israel was going out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat and holding a prayer meeting together with other believers out on the water. Now, the Sea of Galilee is set in the northern part of Israel. It's nearly 700 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is 8 miles wide at its widest point and more than 12 miles long from north to south. In places, the Sea of Galilee plunges to depths of 200 feet. Now, many first-time visitors, as I was, were surprised to see that from any point on the rocky shore, all other locations along the shoreline are visible. Around the sea, the hills of Galilee reach nearly 1,400 feet above sea level, and the mountains of the Golan Heights, called the Decapolis in Jesus' time, reach more than 2,500 feet. 
Much of the sea's beauty comes from being nestled among the hills green in the spring and brown during the dry season. This contrasts with the striking deep blue of the water. The Golan Heights are on the eastern side. Now, the sea's location makes it subject to sudden and violent storms as the wind comes over the eastern mountains and drops suddenly onto the sea. This is because the colder wind coming over the mountain hits the warm air coming off of the Sea of Galilee. And as it happens, the cold air is being heavier. It drops. And so sudden changes can produce surprisingly furious storms in a very short amount of time, as it did in Jesus' day. Now, these fishermen who made their living on the Sea of Galilee would take their fish to a little village where they would process them. It was called Magdala. I've been to Magdala. It was recently rediscovered after many years. The Catholic Church was building a retreat center on the shore of the lake and they discovered Magdala. I walked through the remains of Magdala. I went into the synagogue where Jesus taught. The beautiful fresca is still there. The walls, the foundation, it's still there. And I could imagine Mary of Magdala standing out in the street, which is still there, listening to this preacher talk and something caught her about Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus cast out of her seven demons. Well, this was a fish-processing village, and then the fish caught would be sent to Rome. That was the major market for fish in that day from the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was where these men who were to become disciples of Jesus made their living. Peter and John both had prosperous family fishing businesses. It's interesting, in that day, the water was 15 feet higher in the Sea of Galilee than it is today. Many changes have occurred. But that day... Jesus went by boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They were going to cross over to the other side. We find this story in Mark, the fourth chapter, and verse 35. Before we begin, let's pray together. Lord, as I begin this broadcast of Pilgrim's Progress, I ask, Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you move among the people who hear this word as you did in the day when it occurred? Lord, we will praise you and honor you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Oh, and by the way, I want to let you know and say thank you to Julie. She is normally Don Crow's producer, but today... She has come over to another studio, and she's producing our broadcast. Brother Kevin had other responsibilities, so he could not be there. So, Julie, thank you. I appreciate that you're here and with us and producing today. In Mark, the fourth chapter, I'll begin with verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. These disciples have many times traversed the Sea of Galilee. It, it is their home. They have spent many nights fishing on this 
on this lake. They live beside this lake. They know how dangerous this storm can be. And they are frightened because this storm is so ferocious. The wind is so heavy that they know they could die this night. Jesus is with them. He's in the stern of the boat. That is, he's all the way in the back. And there is a cushioned area there. And Jesus is sleeping. He must have been totally exhausted. He's sleeping there on that cushion. The disciples wake him up. In all the ferocious storm that is blowing, the wind is howling. Jesus is sound asleep. In our lives, storms come suddenly upon us. One day we are happy, everything is okay, and then suddenly we're in a car accident and our car is totaled. Or suddenly we're fired and our whole financial well-being is destroyed as we sit in that office and hear the bad news that we're being let go. Or a parent dies or a friend becomes very ill. Suddenly, everything about our life is tossed in the air and the storm is ferocious. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle it. And in the midst of that, that's how these disciples are. They are terrified. They are afraid. They're thinking they're going to die. So they awaken our Lord. And they say to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if this boat goes down? If we all are in it, we're going to die. Jesus, without saying a word, stands to his feet on that rocking boat. And he speaks to the waves. Quiet. Be still. And the wind suddenly is cut. It is no longer blowing. It is completely calm, and the waves quickly drop down. And the water becomes calm, flat. And he says to the disciples, Suddenly, the storm is over. He says to them, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. And they said to each other, Who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's a very key question. Who is this? In the midst of their terrifying storm, in in the midst of their life-threatening storm, they watch as Jesus calmly stands up, speaks to the storm, and instantly the storm is over. And Jesus says to them, Have you no faith? Why are you so afraid? Well, I can tell you why they're so afraid. They're so afraid because they know the danger of the lake. They know their capacity to survive in this storm will not work for them. They know there is no escape for them. They know that without question, this night, they are going to die. So they wake Jesus and ask him, Don't you care if we die? How many times it has seemed to me that Jesus was sound asleep and the storm is raging in my life, and I have no idea what to do. I don't know where to turn. Everything seems to be a dead end. How do I manage this? 
Well, I don't. When you reach the end of all human ability, when the pain and the anguish of your situation become so great, you don't know where to turn. You have no expectation that God is going to rescue you. I've been there. And I've cried out to God. And there have been times when I've cried out to God in just pure terror. With no expectation of an answer. And yet in his mercy, he heard me, and he answered, and he saved me. They had watched Jesus heal the sick. They had watched as he touched the blind man, or as he spoke to the leprosy and said, leave, be gone. They had watched as he had ministered to person after person, totally restoring them. But it is one thing to watch and to read stories, and it's a total another thing to come into that ferocious wind of crisis. And in that place, know that if you cry out to God, he will answer. Now, some of you are too far away from Jesus to expect an answer. That's what you think. It's impossible to be too far away from God for him to answer. He hears our cries and he will answer our cries. It is not that you have to be deserving to have the answer of God. It's that you have to cry out to him. And as you cry out, and as you cry out, and as you cry out, your heart is tested. For the Lord wants to know what is in your heart. There are times of crisis when you do not cry out to God because... Your heart is too proud. You don't think it'll do any good anyway. And Jesus says to you, where's your faith? Don't you believe? For him who believes anything is possible. This Jesus, I know if I say to you, who is this Jesus? You can answer very quickly from an intellectual perspective. And you can say, oh yes, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. That will not touch the heart of Jesus. We are not saved from our crisis by our doctrine. We're not saved from our crisis by knowing the right answers. We are saved in the midst of the storm by the word spoken by Jesus. When he speaks the word, the rescue comes. Right now, are you in a storm? Do you need an answer? Cry out to him. Humble your heart and cry out to him. We put up with such hardship and such suffering in our lives because we have no faith that Jesus will make a difference if we cry out to him. And sometimes, many times, when I have cried out to Jesus, he has not instantly answered my cry. 
Instead, his answer has been, wait for me. Because the temptation of my heart, maybe I'm alone in this, but the temptation of my heart is to jump into action and do something to try to rescue myself. And often when I jump into action to try to rescue myself, I only prolong the difficulty and find myself even deeper in the struggle to live. I've watched time after time in my life as I have waited upon the Lord, as I've cried out to Him in the desperate place of crisis, that He has me wait upon Him. And as I wait upon Him, He deals with my heart. And he builds in my heart his faith that he will move and he will deliver. And what I've experienced time after time is that suddenly with a great sweep of his hand, everything is changed and transformed. He seldom does just one thing at a time. With the sweep of his hand, everything changes. Now, there's a story I want to reference today. We don't have time to go in depth. It's found in the book of Acts, the third chapter. We find there the story of Peter and John. They are going to pray at the temple. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the lamb is sacrificed. That's when they gather to pray. As they come to the temple gate called Beautiful, they find there a man. He's over 40 years of age. And he's begging. His family carries him there because he's been lame from birth. He has never been able to walk in his life. And he helps the family care for him by begging, asking for alms. He sees Peter and John as they're walking toward the temple to enter the gate, and he panhandles them. He asks them for money. Now Peter looks straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, Look at us! The man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk! Taking him by the right hand, he helps him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. He jumps to his feet. He begins to walk for the first time in his life. He walks with them into the temple courts, but he's not just walking. The scriptures say he was jumping up and down with great joy, praising God with a loud voice. All the people see him and they recognize him, and he's praising God, and they wonder, what happened to this man? They know he's the man who used to sit at the gate begging. They've seen him just a moment earlier. And the people are absolutely astonished. They're filled with wonder and amazement. What has happened to this man? So this man is holding on to Peter and John as he's jumping up and down. He's dancing with joy. And the people are astonished. And they come running from all over in the temple to Solomon's colonnade. And there's Peter. And there's John. And they want to know what happened. And Peter begins a sermon. It's an astonishing sermon. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? I want to stop. 
He says, it's not by our godliness. It's not by our power. It's by the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. Now, we've become accustomed in our culture, in America today. We have taken all expectation of miraculous power out of the name of Jesus. We've intellectualized it. Oh, I want to tell you today, there is such power in Jesus Christ. There is such incredible power in this man, this son of man, who is God. There is such awesome power. He can, with a few words, still the waves on the Sea of Galilee. He can rescue the disciples in that terrible storm. Now these disciples know without question after after walking with Jesus, after going through the crucifixion, after seeing Jesus rise from the dead, after being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, that is, they were filled with Jesus himself. Jesus has come and he now dwells in them. Please, I don't mean to insult you, but do you know why you know of no power in the name of Jesus? It's because Jesus does not live in you and you do not live in him. When Jesus comes into us, great power is released. Great power is released. And I've been spending days, months, where I have cut off everything in my life except this radio broadcast Sunday morning worship with the National Prayer Chapel and ministering to the few people who come or who call. All the remaining time I have given to seek after Jesus and to lay my life on the line for him, expecting the power, the presence of Jesus to come into my life in a way I've never before experienced. On what basis can I do that? Certainly not by looking around at others, because they're as weak as I am. In fact, Pastor David Wilkerson, who was my pastor, he has now gone to his reward with Jesus, but I called him one day on the phone. He was a father to me. I called him one day on the phone and I said, Brother David, could I come to New York? Would you anoint me with oil for the baptism of the fullness of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit? He said, no, Ray, I can't do that. I said, why not, David? He said, because I can't give what I don't have. He said, the greatest sorrow of my life has been that I have not had more of Jesus in my life. And if you know anything of Pastor David Wilkerson and Times Square Church, you know that Pastor David was a giant among us today. His confession, I can't pray for that blessing for you when I don't possess it. Please hear me. There is a depth of Jesus that we don't even know how to talk about today. There is a power in the name of Jesus that we have not even begun to realize. We have not plumbed the depths. It's like a boat skimming over the surface of the Sea of Galilee, not realizing that you're skimming over 200 feet of water down below. The depth is there, but you're just right on the surface where you can survive. My brother, my sister, we've got to go deeper. We've got to have the fullness of Jesus if we're going to do the work of the gospel in this wicked age in which we live. And that's only going to come by prayer and supplication and reading the word, the Lord said to me, if you want my power, 
read my word. And after he said that to me, I began reading from Genesis to Revelation, time after time, now more than 50 times. At 50, I stopped counting, and now I just read daily, constantly. My goal is two or three times a year to go from Genesis through Revelation. We have to get deep with Jesus. And to get deep with Jesus, we're going to have to cut off the world, the entertainment, the junk, the stuff that doesn't really matter. And we're going to have to seek after Jesus with all of our hearts. Peter is preaching now to these people. And he's saying, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. That's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the author of life itself. We're dealing with the creator God of heaven and earth. This is not just a man. Oh, he is the son of man. That was his favorite name for himself coming straight out of the book of Ezekiel. But oh, hear what I'm saying to you. This Jesus that we have intellectualized, this Jesus that we have sentimentalized. I had a man say to me, Jesus is my best buddy. No, he doesn't know the real Jesus. Jesus is not any man's best buddy. He is holy. He is righteous. He is filled with the wrath and indignation of the wicked who have tried to destroy the earth and the people of the earth. He is filled with wrath against abortion, against the wicked acts of every man and every woman who follows the way of darkness. But he's also the compassionate Savior who will save us from our sins. He will forgive us. And the word forgive in the Greek is ephemi. And ephemi means to remove totally, completely. We don't even come to Jesus and cry out, Oh God, deliver me from all of my sin. Instead, we say, Jesus, cover my sin up so nobody can see it. When God looks at me, he won't see my sin. He'll just see you. What a phony, wicked thing to teach. It's the great delusion spoken of in the scriptures for the end of time. The belief that you can continue walking in your sin and the shallowness of your heart and not seek the depth of Jesus, and that you can somehow be saved? No. No, Peter. Peter goes right down there. He said, we are witnesses of this. You killed the author of life. Well, some of you today are killing the author of life by sentimentalizing him, by intellectualizing him, and you have no power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have no interest in the depths of Jesus. You're interested in everything of the world, the flesh and the devil. You have a cultural Christianity. Oh, hear me today. There are depths in Jesus that we have not even begun yet to understand. I listened a long time ago to a sermon by a woman by the name of Catherine Coleman. Catherine was anointed by the Holy Spirit. She grew up in Grove City, Pennsylvania, which was close to where I also grew up. I've been to that tabernacle. But she said in this sermon, there is so much more to Jesus than any of us have even begun to imagine. She said, the great cry of my heart is more of Jesus more of Jesus and less of me. He must become greater and I must become smaller. 
That was the cry of John the Baptist. Jesus must become greater, and I must become smaller. That must become the cry of our heart. Because we will face the crisis. Every human being will face that crisis. And if all you have is a sentimental name of Jesus, and there's no power in it, how are you going to be saved? And some of you today listening to this broadcast are in the midst of a horrible storm. The wind is howling. You don't know how you're going to survive. Some of you have just gotten a diagnosis of cancer. And you see that as a death sentence. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you are homeless. Some of you are in prison. Some of you are in a marriage that's crushed and crashed and almost to blow up. How are you going to handle the crisis of your life if you've simply intellectualized Jesus and never gone to the depths with him and cried out to him and said, Jesus, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't go any further. I need you to come and reveal yourself to me. I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to pray. I'm going to wait upon you, O God. It is by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. Did you hear that? It's not faith, psychic faith. It's not naming it and and claiming it. It's not with positive affirmations, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. That doesn't do anything. That's witchcraft. No, we must seek Jesus. And the faith that comes through Jesus, that he gives you that faith finally to believe and know that he will rescue you, he will open the door, he will still the storm, He will carry you through. He loves you. You are precious to Jesus. But some of you have played around the edges. You go to church. You go home. And you're with somebody you're not married to. You go to church. You come home. You sit down in front of the TV with a beer. And you watch all of the world's entertainment. You go to church, you come home, and you fight and scream with your wife and your kids, or your husband and your kids. You're mad. What's happening in your life? Any person who does not have Jesus in the boat with him is going to face a crisis a life-threatening crisis. You need Jesus in that boat with you, and you need your heart filled with faith and confidence in him, or you're going to be terrified. It's interesting to me that in the story of the storm being stilled, they're more terrified by this man who speaks to the waves than they were terrified of dying, because suddenly they recognize they are in the presence of Almighty God, who holds their life in his hand. And when he speaks, nature obeys. Cancer's gone, raised from the dead. Whatever the crisis is, it's solved. He has the power. Nothing is impossible for him who believes. But it's not in your faith. It's in the faith that comes through him. It's not in what you work up. It's not in what you struggle to grab a hold of and believe in the face of the impossibility. No, it's Jesus you go to. It's Jesus you grip and hold on to. It's Jesus who has the power, not your faith. 
There are foolish people today who actually believe that faith has power, that God used faith to create the earth, and now I can use that same faith. You're working in witchcraft, brother, sister. That's not the real deal. Jesus is the real deal. And it's faith that comes through Jesus that brings the change. That's what he's saying. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. Now, fellow Israelites, Peter goes on. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. So Peter is saying to these people, you're astonished by this miracle. It was Jesus who did this miracle, the power in his name. It's through the faith he gave to this man And he believed. He's saying, look, some of you have been ignorant. You haven't known. Some of you have not known what I'm sharing with you today. He's saying the place to begin, if you want want power in the name of Jesus in your life, the place to begin is on your knees, repenting for your sin. That's the first step. If you want the power of Jesus in your life, if you need healing today, or you need to have the crisis stopped, you need to have the storm stilled, the place to begin is to repent before him for selfishness, for anger, for bitterness, for not being forgiving of others. The place to begin is to repent for that fornication and turn away from it, to repent for that pornography and turn away from it, to repent from that anger and bitterness and turn away from it, to repent. And then secondly, to turn to God, to turn to your Father who is in heaven and ask that his will be done in your situation and cry out to him, so that your sins may be all wiped out, removed from you, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you. It's the Father who will send the Messiah, send Jesus to you. You cry out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, thy will be done in this situation. I'm asking, would you save me, Jesus? Would you save me, Father? I can't manage this. I can't do it. I'm going to die. And you begin by repenting. What do I repent of, Pastor? I thought I'd repent it. Have you lost your first love? Are you still utterly given over to Jesus in every area of your heart and your life? Do you simply confess that Jesus is your Lord, or is he in fact the Lord of your life? Have you put on the altar your ambition, your wife, your husband, your children, Have you put on the altar of the burnt offering your hopes and your dreams? And have you utterly submitted to Jesus and said, I only want your will? Have you repented for your pride? The grumbling of your heart? The depression and discouragement of your mind and your heart and your life? Have you repented of that thing? Have you turned it over to him? And have you said it belongs to you, Jesus? Now, some of you have 
been ignorant of what I'm saying to you today. But now is the time to repent and to totally, physically, emotionally, spiritually turn to God that he can wipe away your sins by the blood of Jesus. When that happens, a great peace is going to enter into your heart and your mind. And you are now in a position with him where he can send the Holy Spirit to refresh and to strengthen and to give you great faith. (laughs) I used to hear a song played. I don't remember the name of it. It was a secular song. But it talks about the dreams this man has. And then he says, I did it my way. I did it my way. I heard that song recently and I began to smile. I said, no, Jesus, I renounce my way. I will do it Jesus' way. I will do it Jesus' way. I will do my life Jesus' way. I will stand by faith that is given to me from the Son of God, that he will fulfill the promises he has made to me to bring revival to this city. I stand by faith and I will not be turned away And when revival comes, I will never say, I did it my way. Because it will only happen by Jesus' power and mercy and grace as he pours out his presence in this city. The lost can only be saved doing it Jesus' way. Your crisis can only end doing it Jesus' way. The conflict you're engaged in can only be solved by doing it Jesus' way. That's what I want. I want it Jesus' way. Now, the story continues... Verse 26, this is Acts three twenty-six. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you and to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I want you to hear that. It is God's intention not to cover your wicked ways, but to turn you from your wicked ways. The priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, You know, the Sadducees are the business people. It doesn't say the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees, the business people. What what they're preaching, what John and what Peter are saying in the temple is not good for business. They all come, and they're greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they grab a hold physically. They grab a hold of Peter and of John. And they put them in jail because it's evening. Remember this all started about 3 o'clock. It's now evening. They put them in jail. But many who heard the message that I've just shared with you believed in the name of Jesus. So the congregation of new believers grew from 3,000 to about 5,000. 5,000 men, probably including women and children, more than 10,000 believers now are standing for the name of Jesus Christ. Now the next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law They all meet in Jerusalem, and Ananias the high priest was there, and Caiaphas was there, Alexander, John Alexander. All the boys were there from the family of the high priest. 
and they bring Peter and John in, and they ask him, By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I want you to hear this clearly like a resounding bell in your mind. Do you have the power and presence of Jesus in your life, or is he simply a part of a system of religious belief? Or do you actually have the presence and power and person of Jesus dwelling within you? Do you see why I say we must have much more of Jesus? We've not even begun to plumb the depths of who this man, this son of man, this this Savior, who this Savior is. And so I ask, will you make a decision to seek after this man, Jesus, until he is real in your heart and in your life? And will you pay whatever price you have to pay to have this Jesus come and dwell in you? Almighty God, we're out of time for this broadcast, but Jesus... I plead that you would come and be real to every person who is listening. I pray that you will come and break through all of the indifference of our hearts. That you would come and meet us one-on-one, personally. I pray this in your holy name, Jesus, by your blood. Amen. Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. You've been listening. To Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I would really like to hear from you. This is a by faith broadcast. I go month to month. I want to thank each one of you who has given so kindly. The pledges have come in. The broadcast is paid for for last month. One of you sent a large amount of cash in the mail that arrived safely, and I prayed for you and praised God for your kindness. And one lady sent 25 cents, and I prayed for her. It was the, it was the widow's might. God bless you for giving. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, or you can call me and get directions to the National Prayer Chapel, 703-489-1785. That's 703-489-1785. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon.